Hello, I'm Chris Moon, a fellow artist manager, and I will be your guide through tough love, adventures in artist management. For today's episode, I have the pleasure of collaborating with the Music Managers Forum out of the UK in celebration of your 30th anniversary as an organization, creating community and acting as advocates for managers on a large number of important policies. One of their early champions was Paul Crockford, who we will speak to today. Paul has had a rather illustrious career, first as a promoter, then begrudgingly, at first, as a manager. One of his first clients was Tears for Fears. Now he looks after Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits fame. He was also a key player in organizing a series of benefit concerts for the Prince's Trust, including many of Britain's legendary artists such as Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Phil Collins, David Bowie, and countless others. I hope you enjoy our chat. Let's dig in. My name is Paul Crockford. Uh, I'm a manager, ex-promoter. I look after Martin Offler, Dire Straits, Danny Thompson, the Australian Pink Floyd show, and I've been in the music business since 1976. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for taking the time to chat. No problem, Chris. Yeah, I wanted to chat with you a little bit about your history in the live performance space. Um, because if I, if, if I understood correctly, you kind of started dipping your toe into that, uh, in your university years, yeah. um, and kind of grew into it more and more, uh, as the years kind of progressed. And that was probably, I guess, to some degree where you developed your relationships and began, uh, you know, kind of getting into artist management, falling into it as we often do. So, yeah, I just wanted to kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. get, get, uh, I'm, I'm personally, I'll, I'll completely, geek out here a little bit and to say that, you know, that's such an era that I look back on and, and just fascinated with. Cause if I, I think about where live performance has gone from, you know, those early stages, uh, in the, in the seventies and eighties and even early nineties, yeah. I'm thinking about like even the big, you know, events and the charity type events that kind of uh, came into focus in the early eighties uh, through really the early nineties uh, initially, I mean, that was just, yeah, it, yeah everything just kind of uh, accelerated at a quick pace and kind of set the tone for where we are now. I think that, a, you know, so my particular journey starts uh, at Southampton University when uh, I get there in 1976. I'm, I'm a music fan you know and i'm a music nut and i want to at that point i want to be a journalist i think that that would be the best thing to do i can go to gigs for free and people will send me records to review that would be amazing so i go to university with that kind of lurking around in my head i'd done some local band stuff when i was uh, at school uh, but i tip up in southampton and as was often the case in those days the what they used to call the social secretary who booked all the events and stuff it was a part-time job. You had to do it uh, at the same time as you were doing your studies. And that meant that virtually every year, whoever did that would be thrown out of university for failing their exams because they put all their time, effort, and energy into running shows. And then <laughs> come the end of the year, they were you know, very, very behind with their work and they'd get thrown out. And that's happened in the year that I was there. So yeah. three weeks after I get there, I talk myself into winning an election basically told, like all elected representatives, told a lot of lies in order to get the position. 
And then uh, and at 18, somebody says, here's £30,000, which in those days was a lot of money. And you've got to lose that money because it was, uh, it was in the days of the NUS, which is the National Union of Students. And if you made money as, a, as the, you know, the promoter, they cut your grant next year. So what we did was, uh, in a very early entrepreneurial decision, was we put the £30,000 behind the bar and we proceeded to drink it over the year and made money, but it looked like we'd lost money. So, uh, and I was very lucky. So 76 was the year of punk in uh, in the UK. So it, there was a huge explosion in, in bands wanting to tour. There was often uh, what they called a, a disparity between town and gown which means that a lot of universities in the UK were licensed only for students and you couldn't sell tickets to non-students. Um, <laughs> Southampton had a, uh, a little bit more of a liberal policy about that, but it did lead to some tension between you know, the local punks yeah. and, uh, and, and students. But we had uh, the adverts. I had um, yeah. a, a guy called Lou Lewis who used to be the harmonica player with Eddie and the Hot Rods talking about obscure things, who I booked three times and never showed up. But I also had Elton John's band without Elton John, because those were the days when you did that sort of thing. I booked a band, a guy called Jess Roden, who was previously in the Grease band. I had ACDC, which was fantastic. I ended up going out drinking with Bon Scott after the show, which was a big mistake. Woke up in the a local hotel covered in my own vomit, which was very uh, salutary lesson. Don't go drinking with Bon Scott. But it, what it did was that it gave me a huge amount of experience and the ability to learn on somebody else's dime. So I made, obviously made a lot of contacts and some people I still do business mm-hmm. with to this day, uh, people like Barry Dickens, who is the, funny enough is the agent for Neil Young and ZZ Top and Bob Dylan and Paul Simon, who I used to book shows off when I was a, a college booker. And, uh, and I think what that did and a lot of my peers in promoting and or management came up through that route uh, because you know, like now there's, there's no defined access point for people. There's no, if you do A, B, C, and D, then E, F, and G will logically follow in the music. There's a lot more access now, obviously, to courses where you can pick up the basics of mm. contract law mm-hmm. or uh, inclusion and diversity, or this is how you deal with you know social media, blah, blah, which never existed in, in, in my well, a those things weren't uh, weren't in, even in the discourse. But the concept of going to university and doing a course about being a manager or a promoter or just in the music business generally just never existed. That I mean, that's, that's something that's really only happened in the last ten or fifteen years. So, I did my year. I did very well on the entertainment side, not so well on the academic side. And uh, I made a desperate effort in the summer to try and change courses. Uh, I think in America you'd say I did. Uh, I was doing environmental economics with a minor in politics and I tried to switch to a minor in politics to receive a, a note which still amuses my children to this day saying, Dear Mr. Cropford, since you've not attended a single lecture or tutorial in politics, we don't see you as being a valuable member of the faculty. Good luck. And so in the summer of 77, I'm, I've been thrown out of university. I'm unemployed and I kind of bum around for about six months until I get a call uh, from a guy called Chips Chipperfield 
uh, I dealt with uh, booking one of his bands before. I said, look, you know, we're looking for a tour manager, sound guy. You know, what do you know about small PAs? And I said, oh, of course, I know loads about small PAs. And, of course, I'd never even touched one. I didn't know what it was at all. And, again, you know, part two, I talked myself into a job I was vastly underqualified for. Uh, and I ended up driving a band around in a transit van with the gear in the back and the five of us in the front running up and down uh, the motorway playing playing shows and made a lot of contacts there. Uh, and then the guy who was the agent for that band also was a concert promoter and he was there. He was looking for somebody to help him out, but principally to run shows. So I'd already done that at university. Yeah. And I think the first show I did was band called Culture, who were a reggae band, uh, and they were doing a tour called Two Sevens Clash. Um, and I did the show at the Rainbow, and that was 1978. And and that was, and I loved that. I loved being a promoter and and that gamble, to be honest. And I think that that's still with me one way or another. And that got me into promoting. And then after that, I went to work with it was a company called Outlaw, a guy called Paul King. And I worked there for nine years. Um, and along the way, fell into management. I never wanted to be a manager. I absolutely couldn't think of anything worse than having to deal with broken down vans, my girlfriend, boyfriend, small animals left me. I, you know, I'm stuck in LA and my boiler's broken down, all of that stuff. I, I hated that. I loved being a promoter because stood or, or or dropped by what you did in advance and then on the night you either made money or you didn't it was clean and clear and then the band went off and you either did more shows with them or more likely you didn't do shows with them and you worked went on to the next one and at one point we were doing 650 shows a year uh and i loved it and what happened was that we were doing a band called teardrop explodes uh, who were a, 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 a big sort of... They were out of the Liverpool scene in the 80s. Yeah, I remember uh, so the name. Yeah. Out, out of Eric's. Liverpool, Eric's was the club where it all came. So it was them and Pete Wiley uh, from Wah and Echo and the Bunny Men. Mm. And uh, they came to us. We were promoting the shows and halfway through the tour, they came to us and said, look, we've got a problem. Um, our, our tour manager has run off with the attache case with all the money in and more importantly, all the drugs in it. So, uh, you know, we, we can't play, we can't pay anybody that uh, the truck driver's refusing to open the doors until he's paid. Mm. So we said, well, we've already paid you, which we had. Right. And we basically came to an arrangement and said, okay, we'll repay you to get through the tour. And in order to get the money back, my partner said, you know, we'll manage you until we get the money back. Ah. And I was like, nah, I don't I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be involved in management. It's a nightmare. Musicians are a massive pain. You know, why do we want to do that? Anyway, he was adamant and he was bored with being a promoter. I was still excited by it. So mm. to start with, he he mainly did it. And I would get, and I increasingly got more and more and more involved and actually grew to like the fact that you were, if you were a manager, you were, you were like the managing director of their business. Yeah. And there was a lawyer and there was an accountant and there was an eight, but you, you know, you took an overview and you could influence things. And, you know, as a promoter, you're quite passive if, in a way mm -hmm. is that you do, 
you, you kind of, you know, you phone, the, the agent phones you or you phone the agent, can I go to these shows? You do the deal, you do the shows, you move on. And I think whereas for management, you know, it's like, well, maybe we can do this and we can make a difference. And and so we we did a pretty good job with teardrops for all of their their issues. And as luck would have it, the A&R guy was a guy called Dave Bates, who was working for Polygram at the time. And he called and said, look, you've done an amazing job with teardrops, who was who were his act. He said, I've got this little band, they're making a record. They haven't got management, they need management, would you be interested in doing it? And at that point I'm like, oh, you know, it's been a it's been good with teardrops, but I'm not really sure we want to do that. And, and Paul was like, no, 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 we should do it. This is great. Management's great. And it was Tears for Fears. Yeah. And yeah. and so if it had been down to me, we probably wouldn't have done it. But we did do it. And obviously it exploded on, on the first record. And it was one of those stories where and that's happened to me two or three times. We, I happen to be in the right place at the right time. I've been very lucky. Yeah. Because I think that is the thing. There's, there's a lot of managers who are very, very good at what they do, and they just never get that moment. And right. I'm always very always very mindful of the fact that those things you're not in control of and you shouldn't necessarily think that you're you know, that, that your that, that, that your shit smells of roses because often it doesn't. Uh, and I think that partly there is a tendency sometimes with managers and you think, I wasn't really lucky. I actually made that thing happen. It was all down to me. And if it wasn't for me, it would be. <laughs> but there's a huge amount of luck in management. And that's not to decry. Obviously, the hard work helps, but sometimes you just don't have the act at the right time in the right place. And it doesn't matter how hard you work. It just doesn't doesn't ever get off the ground. So we were lucky with Tears for Fears. That led into like global success and then we picked up level 42 for whom we, I'd been a promoter for ages and then we ended up managing them for 15 years uh, and, and that was it all of a sudden I was a manager you know yeah it feels like quite often um, it's those relationships you develop and the good work that you do yeah. in a certain area that people take notice of yeah um, yeah, I mean, especially on the inside of it, it's easy to kind of qualify it as luck. But I would say, in in hearing your story, I think um, you know it was a certain amount of tenacity uh, in your partner Paul just wanting to kind of take a swing at this uh, and seeing yeah. some benefit to it. And there was certainly you know, a few steps and a few challenges and opportunities that opened the door to bigger opportunities based on the good work that you guys did. Um, that, yeah, that kind of aligned in, in a, at a really, uh, pivotal time. Yeah. But you're, you're absolutely uh, correct in saying that when it comes to, you know, that's one small piece of the puzzle, you know, but there's so many other things mm -hmm. that need to fall into place. Um, I was thinking back on, um, this yeah yeah the other day August first was the f I think the thirty first uh, anniversary of MTV uh, launching and you know I think think back right, to that yeah. early era and you know a lot of my exposure to those artists in addition to radio was was certainly through through MTV and yeah. it's just like the the combination of all of that you know kind of changed the trajectory for for so many artist uh during that time frame i mean it's it's almost hard to imagine an artist like peter gabriel having mainstream success even with a song 
as as uh, undeniable as Sledgehammer without that video. Yeah. So my wife was a producer, was a video producer in, in those days, and she did Sledgehammer. She did um, Blue Jean. She did Jazzin for Blue Jean with Bowie. She did Art Take on Me for with Aha. Blah blah blah. What's funny is you can point to that moment when MTV starts to say that's when the problems first happen with artists having to think visually as well as just musically. Mm-hmm. And there's, we, we kind of reap that now where to an incredible extreme with social media. But I think, funnily enough, without MTV, you probably don't have the same demands on artists' time to develop their uh, their visual sense, which is certainly a, something that I think is a big challenge for for musicians uh, these days, is to try and connect with that whole media side that never existed thirty years ago, twenty years ago even. And I think that that's uh, that's an interesting dynamic right now, which everybody's kind of struggling with. Is that you know, and now we're looking down the road at the metaverse and Web three and is blockchain the answer to all our problems? Yeah. 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 The evolution of the music industry is, yeah, fascinating. And I think, you know, I think we're fortunate to be in this time in a lot of ways, like um, being able to see the changes that, you know, really weren't that far back, you know, uh, in, in consideration, you know, the, even a format change from 8-track to digital downloads to streaming. So it feels like there's definitely an arc there. How did it feel to let go of that kind of promoter uh, drive and to make that full commitment to management? Obviously, the success of, of Tears for Fears and Level 42 probably forced it in some respects. You know, the Holy Grail is always everybody looking for the next Beatles, whatever that happens to be or look like. Uh, and I think that we now have an issue where, you know, the Beatles only had two things to worry about, and that was writing great songs and playing great shows. And that's no longer enough anymore. I think that, that and I think that's terrible. That, that, and I have, I have a lot of sympathy for creatives trying to juggle what, how much of themselves they put out there because of the voracious demand by social media for like the 24 hour news cycle and you're always on and you've got to post every day. And if you, don't post every day somehow, that's a bad thing. And also labels leaning into that now quite conveniently for them, I think, where before they would have to be paying enormous amounts of money on marketing and promotion. And now it's like, hey, the artist has got to do this and the artist has got to do that. And uh, I'm not, I don't think that as yet labels have adjusted to the new world. By that, I mean by saying, well, you can't just throw all that back to the artist and the musician. It's too big. It's too, way too big. And it can be really challenging, I think, for managers. Managers have a tendency to be kind of their own independent, you know, kind of isolated island at times, uh, protecting their artists and, you know, fighting for them out in the world where to some degree it's hard to create that community uh, and it's hard to kind of get outside of it. Um, so to find those kind of peripheral, yeah. To, ha- to have that kind of parallel promotion uh, aspect, you know, like you said, kind of keeps you in the game, scratches that itch, but also, you know, creates opportunity, um, which kind of leads me to, you know, the uh, MMF and, and the kind of foundation of, of what that has, has kind of built and, and become. Um, 
do you want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, how that came to be and your role with all that? Sure. So in its first incarnation, it starts about 30 years ago now. I think it was close to 25, 30. And and it comes together through um, a a group of senior managers. And I wasn't as involved with it then uh, as I am now. Um, And it started very slowly. And I think that it was a, a reaction, I think, to the changing landscape that was going on and the strength of labels and and one of the weaknesses you have as a manager is that you you know if you're if you're taking on universal or its equivalent you know it's going to be a pretty that's a pretty daunting task and i think there was a before in the artist management community well the music business in london was all based around a square two miles in the center of the town and that would be in Soho, and you would you, you could walk out of a of your office, your, your scratchy little one room office at the top of some you know dog eared building that you would you know it's all you could afford, and you'd walk down to the local pub or bar or whatever, and you would meet somebody who was a publisher, or you might meet another manager, or you'd meet a label person, or you'd meet a promoter or an agent because everything was centred, and gradually that dissipated. First of all, the labels moved west and then they all moved out of town. The publishers the same because it got very expensive to be in the same. And so it meant those watering holes, which were kind of, I don't know, sort of natural but unorganized exchanges of information. Uh, they, they kind of, you know, people weren't going to those. And I think that the MMF was created out of a need for an exchange of information between managers. And, you know, you kind of allude to that sensible analysis that, you know, most managers, certainly in the UK, were, were single-person operations. Uh, they might have one, two or three acts maybe, but that whole, you know, what was, uh, you know, the, what became a lot of the American model with, you know, the Irving or Frontline or uh, Corrin Capsule's Red Light, that never really caught on here. I mean, people had a bit of a go at it, but there was always, I think, and I think it's a very, without being racist, a very English thing of, it, it, managers were a bit more maverick, I think, over here. And by that, I mean, you never referred to yourself as being in the music business, per se. It was always, it was never really a proper job. I think in America, it was much more perceived as a real occupation. Whereas I think in the UK, it attracted people because it wasn't. It attracted people, certainly attracted me because I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be an accountant. I didn't want to be a bank manager. And the music business as it was, was full of loads of people like me. It was full of individual entrepreneurs or music fans or whatever. And it was not a a collective industry thing and was frowned upon really. You know, my grandma never stopped asking me when I was going to get a proper job until I came home with photos of me shaking hands with the Prince of Wales. And she was like, I would suddenly realized that maybe I was doing something that was sensible. And that was not an uncommon, not an uncommon thing because it wasn't really perceived as being proper. We suffer from that still, I think. But if, so I think the MMF was, was a, not a reaction, but a sort of, we've got to get ourselves organized. We've got to do this. And we go, we need to have a voice uh, and it starts very modestly and it 
Tony Wilson is is heavily involved because it starts in the city, uh, which Tony had sort of um, started, which was a Manchester-based sort of industry meeting, and and out of out of that, you know, that the, the idea was obviously to try and find those things which were matters of common interest, be that dealing with labels or dealing with promoters or whatever, to try and find things that weren't specific to your act. Mm-hmm. but were things that you could agree on because it was common ground that we wanted to deal with. And I think that that's how it starts. And it and it kind of grew in fits and starts depending on who was involved and and obviously how much time people have because, you know, right. as, a, as a manager, you're, you know, you're pretty busy. Nobody else is paying you unless you're earning, you know, unless you're earning your own money. And so the amount of time you can give to an external organisation like the MMF is massively dependent on your financial circumstances a good point. and your ability and your enthusiasm for it. And so I would say that John Webster really accelerated the growth, made it much more serious operation and actively went out to try and get big managers engaged. Not that I'm a big manager, but you know, I've got a lot, you know, I've got a lot to say about a lot of things, whether they're right or wrong. I'm quite happy to chat them up. And, I remember talking to him. I was like, oh, I don't really want to get involved. I'd been a founder member of the Concert Promoters Association when when that was first formed. Oh, okay. And I've kind of you now I've done my, I've done my time with industry organisations. I don't want to do it. And I got involved a little bit, and then I got involved a little bit more, and then I couldn't you know couldn't help myself but but, but, <laughs> but get involved a lot more. And and now it's uh, I think Annabella has done an incredible job of professionalising the whole secretariat side of it and the support side of it and. We've got an amazing, incredibly diverse team that runs it. Uh, and in the pandemic, in particular, not that it wasn't great before, but in the pandemic, you know, it did ama- it did incredibly good work. You know, they doled out money. We got money in from people. We got doled out money to managers who were on their knees. Mm. And and I really felt that was kind of a coming of age. If you like, if there wasn't one before, I think that it's. It's an incredible resource. I don't want it to sound like it. it's for absolutely value for money. I learn stuff every day. You interact with people who are doing different things in different ways. Everybody's quite free about most of the information they're sharing. And I, because again, we're back to the same thing. There are a lot of things where we all have a common purpose. Be that I can't get the information out of X. Has anybody audited blah? Would anybody recommend somebody who does this? You know, who are the good lawyers and. And there's a massive educational side to it, which which really helps people. I think that you know informed and well educated managers are are good for the business in all sorts of senses, and they're certainly good for the artists they represent. So I think it's a, a absolutely positive force for change. I love it, and I learn something every time I have a meeting, or I sit on a panel, or I listen to a panel. I always come out thinking, "Well, oh, I didn't know that." Oh, so you know, and I think that the pace of change is so quick mm-hmm. now in the music industry, you know, that dealing is bad, you know, it starts off being bad enough dealing with record labels, but now you're dealing with big tech yeah, who have a, have a much different relationship with music than even the labels and the publishers, obviously. Then that's a, that's a big challenge, you know, licensing and getting paid properly by be that YouTube, Amazon, Apple, or Spotify, or Deezer, or Tidal, whoever it happens to be, where people, I think, generally external players undervalue 
they all want music, but they all think it's not worth very much, which is a kind of a dichotomy that I haven't really understood. Well, it's either you do want it and it's got some value or it doesn't. And if it doesn't right. have a value, then why are you asking for it? And I think that that's, a big that's the big challenge going forward. I think that there will be an explosion of income to come from Web3 and the metaverse. And they, all, they all want, stroke, need music. You know, you'd like to think there's a there's an additional set of licensing income and opportunity coming from those things, be it Roblox or Meta or whatever, or something that we don't even know about now. I think that that's that's an exciting opportunity, which may make some people regret selling their uh, songwriting and uh, publishing assets. But it's a uh, it's exciting out there. It's difficult to navigate, though. I think for managers, it's you're expected to know a lot more. A lot more often you know when i started actually the, the cern canning who's a friend of mine who manages franz ferdinand and i remember we were on a panel uh with with some new you know in a new manager environment and uh somebody said to cern you know what's the difference between managing artists now and 15 10 or 15 years ago he said well 10 or 15 years ago i had to know about four or five things i had to know about record deals to know about live I don't know about publishing and maybe a little bit of, you know, rights on the other side. Now, he said, I have to know about 100 things and tomorrow it's 105 things and next week it's 110 things. The pace of knowledge that you have to have is 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 huge. And I think that you it, it's, it's challenging for managers to try and keep on top of all of that and not make a howling error by saying, yeah, hey, we should license to Facebook for nothing because it's a promotional tool and uh, why would we not do that without knowing or being made aware of, well, this is other things you should maybe think of. And again, I think that's where something like the MNF is incredibly useful. Their publications about analysing, you know, the, the digital dollar or where does the money go in publishing, all of those things are the stuff that's hidden from most people most of the time because that's the nature of the music business always has been basically the business is set up not to pay artists what they're due you know it's, right. it's the old adage of nobody ever audited a label or a publisher and end up, ended up owing them money <laughs> yeah true in the history of the music business maybe once or twice in a hundred years it just never happens like that. And that, that sets up that dynamic, which is still, it's us against them. Yeah. And and it's not, that's not a personal thing. I think that you have to accept that obviously the financial imperative on the side of the label, the publisher is for them to earn as much money as possible. That's an our imperative on the other side is to do the same for the artist. You're always going to be, we're always going to be wanting more and they're always going to want to pay less. Right. It's true. The tech companies too, as you mentioned, and, it's just part of the evolution that, you know, some things don't change, but, you know, the need for education, mm. the need for community, uh, a yeah. wider breadth of, of educated and knowledgeable people to tap into in these new areas yeah. is, is, is crucial. Uh, I mean, if you look back on it, if that, if those, you know, early days incubation period, if you will, the MMF, you know, in the first 10 to 15 years didn't happen you know, would it be at a place where it could do so much now? Um, uh, absolutely not. I think that you have to go through this like anything. It's like growing up, isn't it? You know, right. organizations, you know, you have to find, 
you start with a with that intention, and then you, you you get the ball rolling. It's like, oh, this isn't really what I thought it was going to be, and maybe we need to change direction over here, or maybe we need somebody new to do that. And you know, I, I think that if you look at the way that the MMF is connected now on a political level, the way we're part of the live group in the UK and how we're engaged with other managers, organizations, excuse me, across the globe, you know, that, that it is sometimes like trying to herd cats with managers. I know it's an old, it's a cliche, but it is true because we're all, we're all very busy over here. And that's part of the problem all the time is that, and this is where you get picked off as an artist manager. Often, you know, you're up against a barrage of lawyers arraigned on the other side from people with infinitely deeper pockets and the ability to wait you out. You know, they can mm-hmm. stall. Meanwhile, your artist career is, is you know, is in limbo. And at some point, you normally have to concede unless you're very, very lucky. Yeah. Uh, and you just have to keep going. Part of it is just getting up every day and leaping out of bed full of the joys of spring, no matter what else is going on, to say, yes, <laughs> today, I'm going to go back and I'm going to go. I know I've asked them a hundred times and they've said no, but I'm going to ask again. Because sometimes you can wear them down because they just go, oh, like, yes, just go away and stop bothering me. And I certainly subscribe to that, that attitude. Look, it's reasonable unless you can tell me why you can't do it and it's a reasonable answer as opposed to just because, then I'm gonna keep asking the question. Yeah, that that that's a that's a very wise and, and good point. You know, another thing I'm just thinking about, I mean, as far as the, like the beginnings of that organization, um, and the importance of it, uh, obviously it was at a time where, you know, sharing those resources was was key and there's probably a bit of um foresight towards you know, where the industry was going and that need. But, you know, during the pandemic over here, one thing I was really excited to see was all the the various venues and promoters coming together with with Neva and just like the need around that during the pandemic. I mean, in some respects, I was just fascinated that, you know, it's like, yeah, you you have your head down. We're all entrepreneurs, uh, spirited people at the heart of it in almost any area of this industry outside of, yeah. you know, the tech side or maybe the label side too, to some degree, uh, it's a little bit more, uh, has a more foundation underneath it. But when you look at it and go, oh man, that didn't really exist, but man, the importance of it and what it can mean now moving forward and, and maybe even a societal shift towards, you know, you're looking at so many other areas, uh, that are unionizing and seeing the importance of, you know, kind of fighting for workers' rights and whatnot. It's like, yeah. well, maybe, maybe that's a, a healthy side effect of, of the pandemic in a sense that, well, I you hope know, so. yeah, you got to look I, for the I'm silver clearly, linings, you know. I, I agree with that. And I think that, you know, there's no doubt about it. If you're looking at the erosion of workers' rights or you're looking at the disproportionate, um, and without sounding like a communist, obviously, which is anathema if you're in, is that, you know, there is clearly a, such a massive disparity between you know, Bezos at the top and, you know, the people living on the side of the road in India. There is right. not, nobody can look at that and think that this is fair. How you deal with that, of course, is always the challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, clearly, they're, they're, and we're seeing it now, obviously, with the impacts on the environment doesn't matter, you know, it's going to affect us all. There's only so many times you can fly around the world in your private jet and not be 
not be minded of the fact that actually my villa in Spain is on fire. Right. So it doesn't matter. You know, it's, it is what it is. These things, or my, my house in California is on fire or in Oregon is on fire. And I think that those, I don't know if, I, I mean, you know, in our little corner of the music business, I think we can have a big row. You, you've got to take your hats off to, to Coldplay mm-hmm. about their desperate and very, very, you know, heartfelt move to try and make things, bearing in mind the logistical challenges you have of moving tons and tons of gear from one place to another, right? but trying to do it in as least environmentally damaging way as possible. And I don't think they get a lot of credit. It's very easy to throw brickbats at those sort of things. Well, you know, Chris Martin can do that, can't he? He's, you know, blah. but at least he's doing something. Right. 99% of us are not doing anything at all on that level. So it is a, the, I think that's a positive thing and to be, and to be applauded and to be encouraged and to be amplified. Yeah. Because that's what it needs. And I think that there is, there's definitely a role to play if people in those positions come out and say, you know, we should all be doing this and, you know, and, and if everybody makes a little bit of a difference, then the, the change is massive. Yeah, uh, both on the artist level, but also on the fan level, you know, it's an education opportunity yeah. for the fan to make some, you know, minor changes, you know, in their lives and how they deal with the world and that could have, you know, rippling effect too. Um, Definitely. Yeah, that kind of responsibility. Yeah, is important, especially in this day and yeah. age. And, you know, obviously, the work yeah. you did with Princess Trust and um, you know, just kind of the awareness of those type of things. Again, it just, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's encouraging and exciting to see, you know, I think that's a big, big yeah. part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you know, we didn't talk about your work with Mark though. And I would love to, to do that for a hot minute. If you, you still have a bit more time. My connection starts in 1978 when, uh, I promoted, I was working with Paul King and we promoted a Talking Heads, a few, a few Talking Heads shows and Dire Straits were the opening act. And so we knew them, I, I knew them from then and we as promoters promoted all the shows they did up until the last tour they did when we weren't really promoting anymore and we didn't do it. So basically from 78 to 1990 every show that they did in the uk i was the promoter for and and even some of the shows in europe i went and worked for the band doing uh, what they call site coordination when they were starting to do really big outdoor shows and in the year 2000 ed bicknell who was the manager of the uh, of the band and mark at the time wanted some needed somebody basically to come in because mark had agreed to go out and do a solo tour a second solo tour he'd ever done in mm. on the back of silent philadelphia and so ed needed somebody that he could trust and that mark knew and i was kind of the basically the only person there you know and i went in and i went to work with ed and after six weeks that mark and him fell out not in a big way but they did and so they stopped working and and I got a call from Mark's PA, who I've known for a long time, a woman called Robin Becker. And she said, uh, you know, Mark wants to know who side you're on. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, I don't want to sound like some crass commercial 
person here, but I'm on the side of her who's going to pay me and Ed's not going to pay me because there's no work anymore. So if Mark wants to pay me, I'm in. <laughs> and the message, the message that came back was, Mark says, that's great. Can you do it until he finds somebody proper? And, and either he's not looking very hard or the opposition's really rubbish because 22 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> so, and I, I think that, so I was lucky, again, I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I was lucky because I'd worked with the band for a long time and, and, and Mark knew me and liked me and trusted me. I had a, a reasonable reputation for honesty and forthrightness, which he liked. And and so what was good about that in the first day was that we didn't have to go through too much of that learning curve that you go when you take on a new act especially a new established act where it's like well how do you do this how do you do that and right that didn't take very long because we we already knew each other very well and it was very open and honest and all that and mark was very mark's very happy to be informed but leave the business so you know he, he refers to me as the unacceptable face of the music business <laughs> which is uh, i said to him i said and i'm on your side you know it's like <laughs> But he's quite happy, and I've been sat sometimes in interviews with him, and you know, maybe at the end the journalist will say, well, you know, what do you think of the state of the music business? And he and he, he will say, oh, no, I do the music. Speak to him if you want to know about the business. And uh, and that works very, very well, you know, and it's been an amazing journey. It's an amazing ride for me. I mean, sometimes I'm sitting backstage in the dressing room and he's noodling away on a guitar and we're chatting away and I'm, and I, and I, I get a bit impostery, you know, that imposter syndrome. And I think sure. God, somebody's not going to walk in a minute and say, ha ha, it was all a joke, Crawford, you're out. <laughs> Cause I think, that, I think that's kind of a natural thing with managers. You're always, always yeah. expect, it is that thing at some point you always fall out with the artist. I mean, uh, touch what it hasn't happened to me very often, but because you, your job is to be objective as a manager mm-hmm. and the artist by his very nature or their nature subjective. They think about themselves 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And your job is to look at the wider picture. Your job is to say, I know you really want to do that, but maybe you shouldn't. And that's, you know, I don't tell Mark what to do. Of course, you know, he doesn't right. need, you know, he, he, he doesn't want either way. They'd also do say every act gets the management it deserves. But I think <laughs> that there's, cool. uh, there, I think that there is a thing where you say, in my professional opinion, this is what I think. If you do this, this may happen. There's no certainty in music. You know, if you release X and you do everything right, it still doesn't mean that X track is a hit, whatever that means these days. Right. But at least you can say, if you don't do this, I can tell you that nothing's going to happen. Right. And I think sometimes you, 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 at the end of the day, the artist has to be comfortable with the decision, but you have to, your job is to advise. Your job sometimes is to persuade, because if you think that that's what's best for them. So with Mark, you know, he, he's not, he's never been, he's been very lucky, if that's the right. What happened with the Straits was that music did all the work for them. Mm. They toured really hard, but the combination of the music and the live shows meant that he did not have to do a lot of the dog and pony show, even when the straights were first starting, because the music was so big, so many places so quickly mm-hmm. and, and continue. And he can obviously continue to write amazing material, which turned out to be commercial because as he'd tell you, he's never written a hit song in his life. 
And that, that, but that created, if you like, a bit of a monster, yeah. not in a bad way. Right. So, you know, he doesn't like to do, you know, he feels uncomfortable talking about himself. He's very, he's a very modest man, you know, and I think that that, when we're talking about how you handle where we are now, that's a big challenge for artists of that era who've come from that place. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at a lot of the, his peer group, if you look at, you know, uh, Eric Clapton, or you look at you know, the guys from the Floyd, or you look at Sting, or you look at Dylan, a lot of those people are like him, and they're not really engaged in social media. There may be people like me running their social media side, but it's not the same as Drake posting, or right. Weekend posting, Gargar or Billie Eilish, because that's not a world that they know anything about. So to retain some sort of sense of authenticity, that's a challenge. Yeah. And you're doing it on, on somebody's behalf who really is not that interested. You know, Mark would say, I don't want all these emojis on my Instagram feed. And I'd have to say, well, they're not your emojis, Mark. They come from people. People do that. <laughs> and there's nothing we can do about that. You know, <laughs> right. And, and I think that they sometimes, you know, there's a whole thing about artists, how much of themselves do they expose mm-hmm. to the public? And that's a, that's, Balancing that is really difficult. And I think that you have to view, I always say to, to me, you know, there's a professional life and there's a personal life. You don't have to put your personal life into your professional social media. You can keep that private and out of the way. Right. And that's what we do. In my book. We have nothing really personal on the social media stuff at all. It's all to do with the career. It's all to do with guitars. It's all to do with like, whatever it is. Right, but it's nothing to do with you know wife and family, and this is what I have for breakfast and all that sort of stuff. But I think that it, you know you can't not engage with it. How much you engage with it, of course, is a matter open for furious debate. Sure, but it's you know, but that's how people want to consume. Even fans of Marx who skewed ninety five percent of them are over thirty five and male. That you know those people still want that information because they see it everywhere else for everything and. You just have to navigate that. And that's, again, that's part of your role as a manager is to try and navigate a, a route through all that that leaves your artist feeling comfortable and safe and not conflicted and not too burnt out by a constant desire for, you know, what colour your underpants and, you know, what's your favourite cereal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely, you have to kind of be where people engage in some capacity yeah. or otherwise to your point earlier, it's like, you know, you can choose not to do that and yeah. likely somebody else fill that space and, yeah. um, you know, you'll get kind of lost in the shuffle of things. Um, no, I've always admired. Noise. Yeah. Yeah. The noise level is so much higher than it was 20, 30, 50 years ago. Um, you know, when there was fewer outlets, uh, there's so many, things pulling you in so many different directions nowadays, but there's, um, there's an emotional attachment, I think, to artists of that era, this nostalgia to some degree, but it's also great to see people being vibrant and continuing to create. And, you know, there's a, um, for me, at least I, you know, speaking for myself, I think it's probably true of a lot of Mark's fans. I think, you know, just, uh, Anytime he picks up a guitar and you hear his voice, you just in any kind of format, it's it's comforting, you know, and you want to continue to hear that. Mm. Um, so I think it's also easy to identify, but I think that's the other thing. Often mm. with artists, 
of that era is that they had, you know, his guitars. And you, when he plays them, you know that it's him. You can pick up yes. any guitar with any amp, feel around for a bit, and then you can hear what it is. There's no magic to it. The magic is in the fingers and the, and the skill. And I think that that is sometimes what people go back to because it's a bit like listening to a, it's a bit like listening to James Taylor. It's a bit like listening to Clapton play guitar or Sting sing. It's those things are easily recognisable and they stand out from the background noise. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, this is Van Morrison. You can identify that. And I think that that's rare. It is. It's much rarer than we think, you know, and, and I think when you're talking about the background noise and the 65,000 tracks that ingested their word into Spotify every day is terrible, <laughs> terrible concept, I think. Right. Anyway, <laughs> trying to get your stuff to stand out above that is an absolutely enormous challenge. But at least if you've got, an artist that has a distinctive feel or a distinctive voice or tone or a, a ability to write. And that's obviously a massive, massive plus. No, it totally is. And, you know, the the emotional connections that you have to, to music from any era, however you're introduced to it, um, you know, they really do stand out. Um, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate in a way, I mean, I was born in 73, so I bought, the first record I bought was Synchronicity and it was the last LP I bought, but the first cassette I bought was uh, Songs from the Big Chair. Um, All right. So, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, anytime I hear, you know, shout on the radio or something, it's yeah. like, oh my gosh, I got to go back and listen to that record. It's a classic, great record. I have an emotional connection to it. And I, yeah. I think, you know, the production and the songwriting and the performances are you know, they stand a test of time in a way. And, you know, and then there's also artists, you know, you, uh, I hadn't, uh, to be quite honest, I haven't thought of level 42 for a long time, but now I'm like, Oh my God, I got to go back and revisit some of that. Cause you know, I, th- there was a moment where that they were omnipresent and, uh, yeah. you know, you, you, to, yeah, to tap back into that memory is, is really nice. And, uh, it's, to me, it just feels amazing. That is the amazing thing for me about music. You know, yeah. you can hear, I mean, I'm a massive Who fan, huge, 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 mm. huge, huge, huge fan. And I can hear the opening chords to any Who song and it takes me to a great place for me. Yeah. You know, it's an exciting if I'm wearing a Who t-shirt, I don't know, wear a Who shirt today. But it's, <laughs> um, and, and I'll, funnily, I also love the fact of being a fan of that. You know, when I met them for the first time, and all that, it's actually not for introduced me to, to Pete Townsend a long time ago now. And and it was the first, Mark laughs about it still, it was the first time he said he's ever, I've ever been lost for words. And <laughs> and I I love to have that, I retain that that fandom mm-hmm. because I think it's, it's really easy when you're in the music business to get a bit cynical about it and be a bit twisted and a bit bitter and it be, all become just about the money and, the, and you lose that connection or that, abilities to understand that connection at your peril you know i still when you're at shows and you see kids coming up this is not the ebayers but you see kids with a guitar and it's clearly their guitar and they want it signed because they're you know they're massive guitar fans and they're shaking they're literally shaking yeah. you know you have to, we have to hold the guitar down because otherwise mark can't sign it yeah <laughs> that's incredible i think what's yeah. a shame for example in that world now is that you can't come out of a stage door without bumping into people 
normally organised, who've all got their old vinyl copies and a guitar scratch plate or a baseball. You know, it's like, what the fuck are we signing baseballs for? <laughs> you know, when I, the last time I looked, we haven't hit a home run for some time. And and it's that, that thing, which I think I feel sad about because it has definitely taken artists now like, Ugh, I'm not going to do it because... 95% of these people are professionals. Yeah. And that's up to them. They could, But it means that the 5% of kids, and I was one of those who want, just want to see you or be, they, they lose out in that. And I think that that, I find that a shame. I don't like that at all. It's a very, I think that's a very sad movement on where people, you know, are, are transactioning in autographs rather than I'm getting it for its own, you know, because I'm a huge fan and I just want this on my wall. Right. Because I, you know, I love love over gold or but we took to the point actually Peter Mackay, who's an old friend of mine who our, sort of works in our team when we when we tour is out on the road with Rod Stewart at the moment. If people came up with a guitar and they were clearly not fans. So, so they were clearly like, you know, he'd make them play. Ah. It's a good And it's invariably of course they couldn't play. So he'd be like, nope not for you then right you know and i think that that's uh, but to have to go through that i you know I, I think it's sad that that's that's how it, that's how it is now well that and the selfie which of course drives people drives artists mad before it's bad enough if you're just scribbling now it's two minutes and everybody yeah. thinks hey it's only two minutes he's like well if there's 60 of you it's two hours right and, right and it never works the camera never. Oh, 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 no, no, no! That doesn't look very good. And smile. Yeah, and they want it to be like, yeah, totally professional. I'm off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, even as a fan, I just never. I had. I got a few autographs when I was really young, and I was definitely a fan uh, in the process. But somewhere along the way, I was just like, "What does this mean to me? Like, how does?" No, it's true. You know, just I just don't see, and then people collecting them. I just like I don't understand. I don't know. It just I never. Yeah, I I, I feel like having that interaction and that memory of the interaction is better than having a souvenir that is kind of kind of taints that interaction, in my opinion. Funny enough, Liam Gallagher has uh, an interesting approach to that. He's like, he said, "I'll shake your hand and have a chat to you." You know, but I'm not now. I, I, you know, don't ask me for a photograph or an autograph. It doesn't mean anything, right? And I, and I, I, I you know, although he probably doesn't have the interaction, but I, I understand the sentiment. It's like, what, the, what does it mean? It doesn't right. mean anything. Proximity is the thing, though. I get that. You want to be close. You want to be just like, hey, they looked at me. Yeah, Did they actually realize I exist. You know, there's a bit of that. I get that, and maybe an autograph does that for you, or maybe a selfie does that for you. I, I understand. Uh, if you like the rationale behind it, but yeah, I, I don't know. I was I, maybe I should have had, got a few more autographs and taken a few more photos. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, it's just part of the yeah, part of the evolution of everything. It's sometimes yeah. hard to, you know, we all relate to it in our own different ways. So I completely agree, and it is that thing as as it things move forward, and you know, what is you know what is currently acceptable or desirable or required. These days is obviously not something that was the, that ticked any of those boxes thirty years ago. Right. That doesn't mean it's better or worse. It's just different. Yeah, exactly. Different is definitely the perspective to have on it for sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, Paul. Thanks, Chris. I want to thank Paul for taking the time to chat today, and I also want to thank Paul Bonham 
at the Music Managers Forum for setting this up. And to you for listening. You can find us at all the usual places at Tough Love Pod, T-O-U-G-H-L-O-V-E-P-O-D. And you can find me at Chris at ToughLovePod.com. For now, be well, trip up, get back up, and let's all learn as we go. Until next time.